All right, we're in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter two, or chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. And we've been going through the second Peter here. We've seen various things that the Lord wants us to understand and, and come to realize. And uh, today is yet another one. In chapter 3, he talks about the coming of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited that Jesus Christ's promise that he will return is true. And one day he will break through the clouds and take us uh, to be home with him forever, uh, pending our demise first. But this is probably one of the most mocked and, and attacked doctrines other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the promise that he will return one day. And you see it on the cover of Time magazine, or you used to before they went out of print, or their electronic copy or whatever they do now. But you've seen it on Newsweek. You've seen it everything. Will he come back? Um, is this promise of Christ for real? And they line up all their critics who come from a very secular mindset and set to disprove uh, the possibility of Jesus ever coming back or even questioning whether he even ever existed. But we find here in our text this morning, and I'll read the first 13 verses for us, and uh, we'll cover the last few when, when I return in a couple weeks. But you can follow along in your Bibles as we read Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then, or that, that then existed, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will be melt as will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter kind of exposes here for us these scoffers. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he not only says that they will, there will be scoffers one day, but he also implies that they're already there. They're already scoffing. And so when you look at the first section here of this last chapter of, of 2 Peter, chapter 3, we see him that he exposes their, their, these scoffers, but he also shows their just denial that the Lord will return in the first four verses. And it was something that was kind of anticipated. And he kind of ex- exposes the scoffer the first 13 verses, and then the last, four, or the last 14 through 18, the last couple verses of chapter 3, he really exhorts the saints. And so he begins with these scoffers and their just denial upon the Lord's return. And it was something that was anticipated. Look at what he says in verse 1. And we see here his kind of the purpose. He says, this, chapter 3, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you. First Peter being the first. He addresses them as beloved So he's clearly writing to those in the Lord. He's writing to those who have trusted the Lord as their Savior. But he wants to, he says, stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Sometimes when we come to church, we want to hear something that's brand new. We want to hear something that we never heard before, some new truth or something. and it's neat sometimes that certain gifted teachers can, can give you that to a certain degree. They'll give you a certain slant on Scripture or something, and you thought, wow, I never saw that before. That's always encouraging. But sometimes we need to come together, and we just simply need to be reminded of the basic things. We need to be reminded here, he says, that the Lord is returning. And he gives his purpose there right out of the, the gate He says, that's the reason I'm writing you. I want to remind you of something. Not something new, but something old. Something that you've heard before. And he had already made these statements before in 1 Peter over and over again. You can read through that. And so they had been well grounded by their teachers. And yet Peter still had to come alongside of them and say, I still need to remind you of something. And in verse 2, he kind of makes his point. He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In other words, don't forget the promises of God that he's already given you. So many times we come to God and we want something fresh, we want something new, and God is simply telling us, look, I already have given you enough. You can't even handle what I've given you. Get in the word and find out what I've already promised to you. 
earlier on in chapter 1 when we looked at the sufficiency of Christ to save us. We talked about the idea that there's so many Christians today, they're looking for something more, some super anointing or something. I don't know what they expect. But when God saves you, beloved, He saves you entirely. He saves you completely. There's nothing more that you can add to your salvation. So sometimes we need to stop looking for something new and just come back to the basics of the truth, to the basics of what He's shown us. And here he refers to the Old Testament, the Holy Prophets, and even the commandment of the apostles of the Lord and Savior. He says, don't forget, God has gifted you with this book. Don't lose sight of that. I know one church did a survey of their members and they said, how often do you pick up your Bible during the week? And they were so ashamed they wouldn't share the results with anybody. That was how bad it was. You know, do you just dust this off on Sunday to, to bring it, to show everybody you got one? Or do you open it up during the week? Are you reminding yourself of God's promises, of God's purpose? Don't lose sight of that. That's very basic, but it's so true because 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says that there's doctrines out there of demons and devils. And they're all over the place. And you know what? They cannot take root in a soul that's well-grounded in God's Word. And so if you're just coming to church once a week, hoping that maybe you'll get a shot in the arm, thinking that's going to get you through the week, I don't care who the preacher is, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. You need to get in and dig it out for yourself. I got a text from somebody, I think it was this past week. I asked them what they were doing, and they said, oh, I'm checking up on the preacher. (laughs) I'm going over the message, making sure everything he says is what it's, what's in the Word. I thought, that he was kind of joking, but that's good. I encourage that. That's so important. Because a lot of the modern cults today, a lot of the, the weird teaching that's going on even in Christendom today, there's a lot of people who are part of those organizations who have been brought up in Orthodox fundamental churches. And they were... At one point, taught sound doctrine, but they didn't pay attention. But somehow, they, they lost the roots. And so now, they're, they're over, kind of on the edge, where these doctrines of devils exist. Well, if you're biblically literate as a believer, as a Christian, it's hard for you to be caught up in the snare of false teachers. It's difficult. Because you're passing everything you hear through the filter of God's Word. And that's so important. Don't believe what I say. Don't believe what anybody says. Check it out with the Word of God, always. Remember, Satan is an angel of light. He's deceptive. He's not going to come to you dishing up an ugly platter covered with ook and mook and say, oh, this, here's some false doctrine. Will you want some of this? No, he's not going to do that. He's going to cloak it in in some new book somebody came up with that maybe has some tidbits of truth in it. But you have to be careful. And so his point was simply to remind them of these basic things. Then you see in verses 3 to 4 how antagonistic they are. He says in verse 
3, knowing this first of all, and this isn't like in an order, that doesn't mean number one, it just means most prominent of all things. Think about this, he says. He says that scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffers will come in the last days. Those who mock, those who make fun. And he points out to us how they're exposed. First of all, look at what it says in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Their ridicule, their ridicule is exposed. Peter says, don't be surprised. This is what's going to happen. He's focusing here on the end times, the last days. Remember, the last days are all the days from Jesus' ascension on. That's the last days. So many times people say, are we living in the last days? Of course we are. In Scripture, the last days basically refers to after Jesus was out of here and in the whole church age till he returns. That's what's considered the last days. It doesn't mean necessarily something in the future. We're living right now in the last days, beloved. And what he says is this, this scoffing attitude, this, this ridicule is, is there on display for everybody to see. They'll come boldly is the idea. They're not going to hide. They're not going to, you know, be timid about it. And you see that. All you have to do is pick up the newspaper. All you have to do is listen to some news broadcasts. And you'll see the mocking attitude of some people toward the Christian faith. Now, of course, God forbid they should ever say anything about Islam and some of the radical beliefs that they have. I mean, that would be politically wrong. But it's okay to bash the Christians. I mean, that's the mindset we're living in today. And so it's important that this this ridicule be exposed for what it is. Don't be surprised, is what Peter's saying. And then he says, following their own sinful desires, or the word is lust, shows how rotten they are, right to the core. That there's, there's no good there. There are people that are motivated, as we've seen in the previous weeks when we did that kind of an expose on false teachers, one of the things that they focus in on is sensual sensuality. It's just very real to them. And that's kind of what they're, that and money is, is what they're all about. And they put on this nice little show for everybody, makes them look like upstanding people, but in their hearts, the Bible says that false teachers are basically driven by lust and driven by money. The idea is, is that there's no, if they're, if they're men, there's no woman that's off, off the chart there. Every woman they see is a, is a potential fling for them. That's really what it's talking about. That's how rotten they are. They walk, they live is the idea, after their own lusts according to their own flesh. And then it says in verse 34, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What are they saying here? This is their, their intellectual reasoning. 
they look at this and they say, well, if Jesus would have, was going to come back, he'd surely come back by now. It's been thousands of years. Come on. Doesn't everything just go on as normal? They have this idea that, that basically everything's just going to kind of wash out in the end. They don't believe in anything supernatural. They don't believe that somehow God injects himself into the world in which we live. That's why they have such an issue with creation. When you talk to somebody who's driven by this kind of reasoning, this, this faulty intellectual reasoning, and you talk to them about creation, they, they think you're nuts. They would much rather believe that, you know, it took billions and billions and billions of years and we came out of a little slime ball out of some swamp somewhere, and, and, and this is what we have today. And they really believe that. And they believe blindly almost, that the evidence of science supports their belief. Even though it doesn't. Most scientists, if they're honest with themselves, they'll really have to conclude that the earth is a lot younger than the time needed for evolution to ever take place. I'm personally a, a pretty young earth, young earther. I, I, I don't, you know... I mean, the earth may be under 20,000 years old. And people hear that. It's like, well, that's not what I was taught in school. Of course you weren't. You were taught in school that all the little stuff that you see in the Smithsonian Institute with all the monkeys and the half-bent-over people, that that's all true. That those are actual skeletons. When they're not. They're fabricates. They're fabrications. None of that stuff is true. And so you see their reasoning exposed. They just say, well, where is he coming? He's not coming. Where is the promise of his coming? All things just continue as they were from the beginning. There is no God. No one's returning for you, you silly people. That's their, their idea. That's their reasoning. And we have to be on guard about that because it's all around us. I encourage you to arm yourself with facts, scientific facts, that disprove a lot of this evolutionary talk that we have going around today. The thinking. It's even crept into the church. There's some churches that believe, well, I, I'm a theistic evolutionist, personally. I believe that, that God kind of, you know, uh, got things started, but then evolution took over. I mean, that's even weirder than just being an evolutionist, in my mind. I just think that's crazy. So arm yourself with that so you can expose the reasoning and the rottenness and everything that's around us today. Because we live in the last days just as they did. It's very similar times, beloved, very similar. Well, then you see their just bold, ignorant denial of his return in verses 5 to 13. This is where we want to spend the remainder of our time. Verses 5 to 13. When someone is said to be ignorant, it can mean a couple different things. One of the things it can mean is that they have the information, they just choose not to believe it. They don't want to believe it. See, the Lord's past judgment, verses 5 and 6, on this earth should have been a clue, at least, for
for them that, hey, there is a God and he's not going to mess around here. He means business. Look at verse 5. It says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact. What fact? That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. Now, what's he referring to? He's referring to creation. He's referring to a God that has the ability to speak and it's there. Genesis chapter 1 verses 9 to 10 tells us this. That the activity on the third day of creation, it basically elevated the land from all the encompassing embrace of the sea. It says this, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together onto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So God had appointed a boundary for the earth and for the seas to exist in. And we have all these great oceans and bodies of waters all over the world. And they surrounded islands. They surrounded continents all over the planet. And every day the sea laps continuously on the shores of the world. Continuously does that. If you go over to Half Moon Bay, the, the waves don't stop. They just keep coming. In the times of storm and, and maybe hurricanes or tempest things, these waves hurl themselves on the rocky cliffs, but they stay within reasonably within the boundaries. And we know because of the, the moon and how God set this planet up that twice daily the ocean tides come surging in. But that division is still there. That boundary that God has set up is still there. And so Peter comes back to this flood once again. He, he went there in earlier chapters. But he comes back. And he's basically telling his readers that, you know what, they overlooked the fact that God warned them about the flood. Enoch hinted at it. Noah was clearly there sharing the message of God while he was building the ark for some 120 years. The one thing I think that Jesus, our Lord himself, focuses in on during that time was their ignorance in Matthew 24, 38, and 39. It was their ignorance. The ark was a sign of God's coming judgment. Just like you look at our society, you don't, you don't think that God will judge what's going on in America today? Slaughtering unborn children? Wrong is right and right is wrong. Everything's upside down. Looking to a political system that's broken and abused to try to fix things. You don't think sooner or later God's going to dish out some wrath on America? I think he already is. Clearly. The ark was a sign of the judgment to come. All we have to do is read the newspaper. We can see a sign of judgment coming. The preaching of Noah was a sign for them. The Bible says, still they knew not. They were willingly ignorant. 
You know, there are some people today who are willingly ignorant. Just like the scoffers back then, we have scoffers today. And they're willingly ignorant of the truth of the Word of God. And our role as Christians is not to judge them. Our role is not to make fun of them. Our role is to pray that God would be gracious to them, that somehow their eyes would be open and their ignorance would be gone and they would embrace the Savior. That's what our role should be. So the ages rolled by. Noah's building the ark, but there's still dry land all over the place. All things continued as they were back then. Then without any warning, the last day dawned. Noah and his family gathered into the ark. And his voice of warning was hushed. The ark was sealed up and all of a sudden that first Raindrop fell. Holy Spirit tells the tale in Genesis 7. It says, In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up. See, this wasn't just a flood of the waters on the earth. It was a flood from underneath the earth, on top of the earth, coming down out of the clouds. The windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth. And the waters increased and bare up the ark. And it was lifted up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the high hills that they were that were under the whole heaven, and they were covered. Fifteen cubics upward did the water prevail. The mountains were covered, and all flesh died. God's judgment upon the earth. And Peter simply pointing out that these scoffers are willingly ignorant of that simple fact. You talk to people even today about Noah's Ark. And what do they do? They ridicule you. They think you're nuts. You really believe that Noah built an ark and the animals two by two? Oh yeah, okay. But the flood really happened, beloved. There's there's geological evidence that proves that. The people of Noah's day were doubtless scoffers. Where is the promise of this coming flood? Everything goes on as normal until it actually happened. And so it's important for us to realize that there are people of this mindset. Well, he not only talks about the Lord's past judgment, but he talks about the predicted judgment in verses 7 to 13. 
He says in verse 6, And that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Gone. That's the past judgment that their, their eyes were blind to. Verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. In other words, the same word that created the heavens and the earth one day will be destroyed by fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He wants us to consider this approaching day. He wants people to understand that there's, there's another judgment coming. Oh, no, it's not going to be... It's not going to be flood, because he promised never to do that again. That's why we have the rainbow, remember? But by the same word that he created everything, that same word, there will be judgment. Except this time, it's not going to be a flood, it's going to be a fire. The next universal judgment will be by fire. I mean, do you think that God is beyond starting a... a, a judgment of fire? I don't. I mean, every time you see a volcano erupt and you see all that stuff spew out and do its damage, whatever village it flows through, I think of the wrath of God, the fire of God just flowing out across this, this world. How this is going to happen, who knows? But God is perfectly capable of doing this. Remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Clearly. That word for destruction there, that word is used of the doom of the sinner. And it's one of the strongest words that you can find in the Greek language to explain and express the final and irreversible doom of someone who is lost. In other words, there is no hope after this. This is it. The word is used over in Matthew. The same word. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy, Jesus says, that leads to what? Destruction. Same word. And those who enter by it are many. The same words used of Judas in John chapter 17. John 17, verse 12. It says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of what? Son of perdition, or son of destruction. Why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. It's also used to speak of the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Second, second Thess, no, it's hard to say. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three. 
says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction or perdition. Okay, it's referring to the ultimate place of irreversible doom for those who are lost. The word does not refer to the loss of being, but it refers to the eternal loss of well-being. And so he says there that this judgment day, this day of judgment and destruction is coming. And we're to consider that. Verse 8, he goes on and he talks about this approaching day. He says, but do not overlook this one fact like they did, (laughs) beloved, That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. What's that saying? It's basically saying that that God transcends our time. There's no time in God's realm. God didn't get up this morning. He doesn't go to bed tonight. There's no time frame for God. The day of judgment is already appointed. And he tells us here that it's coming. And each passing day brings it nearer and nearer. And so he points out here that, you know what? They thought, boy, it's going to be right around the corner. Just like the disciples thought, oh, Jesus is, is he's going to come right back. He's going to leave and come right back. That's what their time frame was. They didn't understand the whole church age was going to be here and all this stuff was going to happen between now and his second coming. They didn't get that. Just like they didn't get when Jesus was, was here on earth and he was the Messiah and he was going to be their king. Well, he thought, they thought he's going to Jerusalem and he'll kick Rome out and then he'll take back and free us from the burden of Rome and all this is going to happen. He's our Messiah. And Jesus said, no, it's not going to happen that way, guys. I actually have to go to Jerusalem and be killed, and be buried, and on the third day, I'll rise again. Well, they couldn't get that through their head. I know sometimes I'll I'll leave the house, and my wife will say, where are you going? I say, I'm going over to the church. I'll be back. In about four hours, you know, she's texting me, where are you? Well, I said I'd be back. You know, I didn't say when, but I'm coming back. See, that wasn't in her mind. Her mind was, well, I'll be right back. That's what they thought. That's what people think when they think of the coming of the Lord. And that's what these scoffers think. Oh, yeah, he said he'd come back. Well, he didn't show up. So I guess that means he's not going to. He points out that God's time is different than ours. I mean, if you think about this, what it says here, that a thousand years is just one day. I mean, it's just been two days since the Lord's ascension. <laughs> In God's time frame, you know, it's just it's nothing. 48 hours, that's no big deal. 
Time flows to us out of the future. It touches our lives for an instant in the flickering moment of the present. It flows on into the past. Time is something that you'll never have more of. You can manage your time however you want, but at the end of the day, you know how much time you have? You have 24 hours in a day. You have 60 minutes in an hour. 60 seconds in a minute. That's just the way it is. I don't care if you're the CEO of Facebook or you're a street sweeper. It makes no difference. We all have the same amount of time. And what he's trying to point out here is that time is not restrictive to God in any way. A thousand years is like a drop in a bucket to God. He sees everything now in the present. That's why the Bible can say things like in Ephesians, I have chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. We scratch our heads and we think logically, wait, I wasn't even around. I mean, I wasn't even a twinkle in my, my mother's eye or she wasn't even a twinkle in her eye. Or You know, you can just keep on going back. How in the world could God say that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world? Because God transcends time. He saw us before there was an us. It's hard to understand, but that's what makes him God, and that's what makes us human. He is the I am. He can experience a thousand years as though it were just a single day to us. Doesn't matter. God's not locked into the same time sequence that we are. There is no past, present, and future with God. All the moments appear as one. I mean, when you, when you think of the clocks and the calendars that we have and the watches and everything, it's all based on the revolution of the earth upon its axis, on the movement of the earth around the sun, and the movement of the moon around the earth. And because of that, we get our days and our years and our months. They're all derived from nature itself. But when you stop and you think of the concept of the week, it doesn't come out of nature. Where does it come from? It comes from direct revelation from God. Six days, then one. Seven days, that's a week. I mean, when you stop and you think of the vast universe and the galaxy, even beyond ours, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I read this article. It said, according to astronomers, the galaxy is not only rotating but also is on a journey of its own through space. It is hurrying along at 1.4 million miles an hour, heading in the direction of the constellation Hydra. No one really knows where we are going. This is comforting, huh? If the Milky Way is on an orbit around some distant center or how much such an orbit might take, if some astronomers are to be believed, our 100 billion star galaxy is being pulled along by a supercluster of distant galaxies. 
in that case, some kind of supergalactic year is thought to be involved. Weird. That's way beyond my pay grade. But there's people that actually study this stuff. Peter reminds us, basically, what he wants them to see is that in no means is God locked into our little measure of time. What does that mean practically for us? Well, you know what? When we're in the midst of a trial, we're in the midst of a tribulation, and we're praying, God, please deliver. I can't take anymore. You don't think God knows what you can take? That's just a blip on the radar screen in God's eyes. Yeah, you've been dealing with this for five years. That's nothing. That's a couple seconds in my mind. Be patient. I have a plan. I have a purpose. I'm not going to let you be defeated in any way. If you're my child, I'll protect you. I'll protect you. I have a purpose for you. I have a plan. And, and it will be fulfilled. It will come to fruition. So clearly, God's mode of time is just far above ours. doesn't even relate. But also, you see here his method of loving even transcends ours. In verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some... <laughs> Count slowness. See, either you believe that God is sovereign, which the Bible teaches. He's in control. He's all-powerful. He knows exactly what's going on at any given time. He knows that his purpose, his plan will be fulfilled. Either you believe that or you believe that somehow we're in charge of this deal. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't sleep too well thinking that I'm in charge of anything. Especially things as big as this. He says in verse 9 that he is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is what? Speaks of the love of God is patient toward you. He's patient. You know, when we stop and you think about the whole idea of, of God saving individuals from an eternal place of torment called hell, when you stop and you, you, you think about that, and that all of us were going to hell one day, we were all headed there the whole lot, And yet God says in his sovereign love and his sovereign choice, he bent down and scooped some of us out of that group of people that was on their way to destruction. And the Bible says that he divinely set his love upon us. Well, why did he choose those people? I have the slightest idea. You can ask him when he get up there. I don't know. All I know is that's what the word of God teaches. And just to make sure that it didn't have anything to do with us or our choice of him or whatever, Ephesians says that that whole process happened before the foundation of the world. Wow. That means we weren't there yet physically. We were in the mind of God. But we weren't here physically yet. 
So God didn't look down and say, oh, that person would be good in charge of this. Oh, that person, I need that person. I'm going to pick him. I'm gonna... It wasn't done that way. The next time you thank God for your salvation, don't think for a second that it has anything to do with you. It has everything to do with God. It says, remember that promise that the Lord isn't slack concerning his promise or slow. God doesn't delay things. He's not tardy. Everything is on time. And if we were under his care, then everything that happens to us happens according to his plan. We have to believe that. So remember his promise, but also he says there he's revealing his patience, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is kind of an interesting verse. And there's some people here that think, well, that must mean everybody's going to get saved. Can't mean that. Who's he talking about here? Who's he talking about when he says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance? He has to be, just by theological logic, speaking of those whom he set his love upon to save. He can't be speaking of everybody because everybody's not going to be saved. So when he says, I don't wish that any should perish, but that they should come to repentance, he's talking about those whom he has chosen. Because the Bible says that surely... If you're among those who are chosen, God will not cast you out. Very clear in Scripture. We need to get back to a biblical, God-centered salvation and turn our hearts away from this man-centered teaching of salvation that's going on today in Christendom. Somehow it's up to you to choose Jesus, and if you make this decision, and if you do this, and if you do that, that's just not the way the Bible teaches it. If God is sovereign over everything, he's definitely sovereign over our salvation. Our salvation is not dependent upon us one day figuring out the gospel. All those whom God has chosen in him will come to him. And by the way, they're not going to come kicking and screaming. Some people think the doctrine of election means that God grabs you and says, you're going to heaven whether you want to or not. You know, no, I don't want to go. I want to go to hell. Too bad, I chose you. It's not going to work that way, trust me. I've never met one individual who's truly come to Christ that said, you know, I still don't like this and I still don't want to be a Christian, but you know, God chose me, so what am I going to do? I've never met someone like that. God is sovereign in our salvation. And he just points out here, that you know what? This is all going to work out because God's patient toward us. Remember that. Verses 10 to 13, he kind of tells us to consider this coming day. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a what? A thief. How does a thief come into your home? 
Does he knock on your front door and say, hey, I'm here to rob you. Would you mind getting out of the way? No. Now, sometimes they knock on your front door when they got somebody coming around the back, right? I mean, they've done that. They've gotten a little creative here lately in Redwood City even, ripping people off. So you've got to be careful. But a thief does not want to be known as a thief when he's trying to rob you. He comes in stealthily at night under darkness. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, it's going to come unannounced. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. I put there a nuclear holocaust. I don't know what it's going to be, actually. But that sure fits the bill. I think it could just be the judgment of God coming out of heaven. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be what? Exposed. He points to the time of it, and he basically says that it's going to be everything. Speaking of the totality of it. Everything is going to be burned up. And I just think that that's, it's so important for us to remember that, you know what, when we look around at all the things that we have, all the materialistic things that we own, not that it's wrong to have those, there's nothing wrong with that. But I like what Chuck Swindoll says. He says, the problem is, is when, not that you have the things, but when the things have you, <laughs> then you got a problem. And that's so true. We need to be careful of that. We need to look at this coming day as a day of judgment, but also as a day that it's going to wipe out everything. So that should affect our priorities. In the Bible, when it talks about days, various days, there's a lot of, a lot of neat little studies you can do on that. But 1 Corinthians 4.3 says that we are living, for example, in man's day. Uh, the Greek word for day is associated with the passing of judgment in different situations throughout the Scripture. It's also referred to, there's a day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2, because God's grace is available to us. You have the day of Christ. This refers to the day when the church will be raptured, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. The day of Jacob's trouble. The day of the Lord occurs first in Isaiah 2.12. Occurs over 20 times in the Old Testament. The expression also occurs four times in the New Testament. The day of the Lord. Basically expressing when everything will be done to abase the man and, and exalt the Lord. Sometimes it's referred to as day of wrath or day of vengeance. The end time holocaust, the apocalypse in Revelation 20.11 gives way to the day of God when you have the new creation of the new heaven and the new earth. 
And you, you have these different you know, studies that you can do just relating to the, the day of this or the day of that. But we see here in verse 11 that everything is going to be wiped out, but then it says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought to be you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, how is this going to affect you? There's an exhortation there. Are we living lives that are honoring to the Lord? Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I mean, what a, what a day to live in. Verse 13, but according to his promise, what are we waiting for? According to his promise, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. A lot of people always say, well, do you believe in aliens and all that stuff? They ask me this question sometimes. I personally don't because I see, even here in this verse, you can see it says waiting for the new heavens and a new earth. So it's almost like God created the earth to inhabit, be inhabited by man. And there's not multiple earths, there's just one. The dwelling place of man. It's kind of a side note, I don't know where that's going. but It's important that I think that we remember though this promise and it takes us right back to the very beginning in verse 1 when he says, in both of these letters I'm writing you to stir up sincere mind, a way of remember. And then in verse 13, he says, don't forget, basically, that you know what? You're waiting for something new. You're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth. But you know what? You can also be waiting for your new body. I don't know about some of you, but you know, the older you get, the more creakier it gets. And some of you know better than I do. And it's like, wow, I used to be able to do this. Now I can't do that anymore. What's going on here? You're getting older. Second law of thermodynamics is setting in. Basically, everything is wearing down. The opposite of what evolution says. Evolution says, oh, no, everything's kind of gearing up. No, it's a lie. It's not true. Everything gets older, including us. And one day the Lord will return. And you know what? Our bodies will be transformed into that new glorified state. And it's just going to be, I I don't even know how to explain it, it's going to be incredible when you stop and think about it, what we have to look forward to. And what Peter's trying to say is, look, you got some crazy things going on right now, but you know what? Keep your head up. Understand that the time frame It's not even on on God's radar screen. This is nothing to God. He's still going to carry out his plan. It doesn't matter. These scoffers running around saying, oh, where is this coming? Where is this coming? It's been years and thousands of years. It doesn't matter. God's true to his word. He'll return at precisely the correct time, at the right time, right on time. And all his promises will be fulfilled in his coming. That's what we have to look forward to. 
And that's why it's even more important as believers that we go out into this lost and dying world and, and do what God has told us to do. Don't lose sight of that, that simple command to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Don't lose sight of that. I think sometimes we, we grow tired of hearing that. But when's the last time you, you literally went out and shared Christ with somebody? Ask yourself that question. It's kind of like, you know, if you, if you worked at a, a gas station and, you know, your job was to, when the cars pulled up, you were out there to fill up the tank. But you weren't doing anything. You're just sitting in the station house. And there's cars lined up. Somebody came in and said, you know, what are you doing? When's the last time you started? Go out there and fill up the tank. I don't feel like it. But that's why you're here. You're the caretaker of the gas station. They're not going to get the gas if you don't go out and pump their tanks full. I don't feel like it. It's been weeks since I've done anything like that. I don't know, you know. That's how we are as Christians sometimes. You know, we're, we're at the station house of God's truth and we forget what the promises we're setting on. And we forget that there's a lost and dying world out there that needs to hear the precious truth that we, we have in our own lives, and sometimes we forget to share that with others. So I challenge you this next week, pray and ask if God would not have you to go out and to share this message with your neighbor, with your friends, with people at work. That God still saves, beloved. God still saves. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you will come back. And yet, Lord, we know that it's according to your time frame, not ours. And Father, we know that according to your promise, we will wait for that new heaven and that new earth. And we understand that only righteousness, it says, will dwell there. Lord, we long for that day. And yet, we're still in a day when we're surrounded by sin and the flesh and the trials of this world. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us continued strength each and every day to live a life that's honoring to you, to live a life that is not beholden to this world, but, Father, that we will live each day as if it were our last here on this earth. That we will speak your truth, truth with boldness and sincerity. And that when we do speak it, that people will look at our lives and see that it's coming from someone who's sincere. That you truly have transformed our hearts and our lives. If there's any here this morning who have yet to acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that you would draw them close to you. Do that work that only you can do, Father. Transform their their heart and their mind to the glorious gospel of Christ. I pray that you would open their eyes to the gospel. Show them their need of a sinner. That they could cry out, be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. That you would answer that prayer. We thank you and we, we ask you to bless the remainder of our day together in Jesus' name.